Awesome admission professionals. This podcast is the Admissions Entrepreneur, a day in the life. I'm your host, Tom Skank. I'm the founder of Dartmouth Associates, and we are the creators of the Results Oriented Recruiting System, otherwise known as ROAR, a proprietary enrollment intervention that integrates entrepreneurial thinking and sales fundamentals to immediately help schools in crisis. We are also the first and only global consultancy to assist K-12 independent schools with their enrollment needs and through integrated multimedia campaigns, introduce schools to companies that bring best-in-class products and services that enhance their recruiting process from around the world. Dartmouth Associates offers 360 enrollment audits, online results-oriented recruiting training, executive admission masterclasses, keynote addresses, conference facilitation, and director placement searches. We also offer three integrated media campaigns designed to both exalt and align admission professionals from around the globe. This podcast, The Admissions Entrepreneur, A Day in the Life, our Roar Magazine, the first ever upscale lifestyle publication for the admission professional, and the San Diego Admission Fest Summit, Power Marketing for the New Era. These diverse campaigns are also designed to offer aggressive sponsorship opportunities for companies wanting to exhibit their products and services to the admission office market. If you need recruiting help or would like to promote your products or services, please email us at dartmouthassociates at gmail.com or go to our website at www.dartmouthassociates.com. Today, we're bringing fun and insights to your profession. We have incredible guests who share their unique life stories with you. So please make sure to catch each and every episode and like, subscribe, and share. Now, let's get started. Well, welcome, dear listeners. This is your host, Tom Skank, and I'm delighted to have our new guest, Bobby Krein. Bobby is currently the Director of Enrollment Management at Moses Brown School. She had the distinction of being a Director of Admission at 24, serving now in her fourth directorship. Wow. What's important to her is very clear. The next thing she's told me is that she has two amazing children, Layla and Gunner, and a 19-year-old marriage to husband Derek, who is currently the Interim Dean of Faculty at Tabor. There's a lot of things we need to talk about, but welcome. So nice to have you, Bobby. No, thanks for having me, Tom. I'm happy to be here. I want to start off with uh, this question, and that is, you have had an amazing career. I'd like to know what drew you to admissions and what has kept you motivated and thriving as a professional in what I think is the most challenging career in education. It's a, that is, it's a great question. I landed in admission by accident, quite frankly. I, uh, mm-hmm. I, when I was in high school, I went to a public school in New York, and um, I, I had two friends that were sent to boarding schools. So I didn't really <laughs> know what boarding schools were all about, except mm-hmm. that 
my interpretation was that my two friends were sent there because they just needed a boarding school. And then my roommate freshman year in college had gone to Millbrook school and oh. she, she would receive phone calls from her former advisor. She would, you know, she kept in really good touch with all of her teachers and boy, was she ready for college. So um, I sort of like, that's what intrigued that that's got me. That is what had me intrigued by boarding school. I sort of walked around her a little bit. She traveled a lot. Um, and so when I, when I knew that I wanted to be a teacher, I sort of started exploring boarding schools because I really liked the relational aspects of being a faculty member at a boarding school. It felt sort of holistic. I've heard of it called it's it's more of a lifestyle than a profession and mm -hmm. I, that that can be a good thing and a bad thing but um <laughs> but certainly so and that was really appealing to me and so i landed at a very very small boarding school in ohio called only friends school and taught spanish there um and then developed an esl program for international students and halfway through my Gosh, second year there, um, my head of school called me into his office and said, so our director of admission left last night. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I know that you're passionate about these schools. You work really well with families. You're numbers oriented and everything that you do screams admission. Um, and so he offered me the directorship at the ripe old age of 24. And I think it was probably a really good thing that I didn't know everything that was um, <laughs> part of being an admission director. But that was sort of my, my, my doorway into the profession and found it really, really appealing. And I think what I like most about the profession is that we're school people. We love our institutions. I think it's hard to find an admission professional who's a used car salesman who doesn't believe in their product in order to do this. We're talking about the lives of families and the lives of children. And so when you work for an, for an academic institution, you really have to believe in what you're selling. And in order to do that, you have to be involved in all aspects of the school and really get to know the place and the people within it. So. Well, you, you've certainly thrived. Um, you've seen this profession for a while. <clears throat> what do you think are the new skills that the directors of admission need to have in, in the next era, the, in this post-COVID era? That's a great question. And I, I feel like I had the benefit of stepping out of the profession for a while so um, not to get too personal, but my daughter was born, um, I was the director of admission at Lawrence Academy when I was pregnant with my daughter, Leela. And um, I, when she was born, my husband and I both kind of looked at each other. He was a director as well of college counseling. We sort of said, okay, so what are we gonna do now? You know, we have this beautiful child. And um, I said, I, I really wanna be a mom. Like that's from, the, from my earliest age that I can remember, that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to be a mom. And so I said, I'm gonna take some time to be a mom. And so I worked part-time, I, I did some things and ultimately I found myself back in a college counseling office um, as an assistant director and really got to see the profession from a different side, right? So I was able to observe what colleges were looking for, what 
sort of how students encapsulate themselves and sort of sell themselves to these schools. And that was really beneficial. That would have been in the early 21st century. So early, my daughter was born in 2003. So I was able to sort of see from a different perspective how these schools were changing, that we were not as test reliant. We were not, we were more about the whole person instead of just, um, you know, what their test scores say and what their transcript says. So that really helped me sort of see that lens. And then I, at the, when I left that position, I opened my own business and boy, um, you know, as a consultant, you really learn about numbers and how important numbers are to, to uh, the success of an organization or, or a small business. And so that allowed me to see the role of revenue in, in, you know, the success of schools. And so now, as the director of enrollment management, I was hired at Moses Brown three years ago, and the position was sold to me as quite data oriented. And I found that super appealing. I love the job description. The job description in my interview with Matt Glendening, our head of school, was all about what the past can tell us about our future, right? So how we've been doing uh, financial aid, how we've been accounting for revenue, markets we're looking at, where students come from, where we'd like to break into, all of those things are super data reliant. And so I found that hugely appealing that the head of school was really, really focusing on those things. And, and frankly, not just saying, we're good, we're good, we don't need to do anything different. We have a name, you know, people know who we are, we're going to be successful forever, but rather, let's plan ahead right? That's, that's where we're going. Um, these schools are so fragile in, in relying on their name, because yeah. families are getting more savvy. Families are asking the right questions. They're making an investment in their child. So they're asking questions about what the experience is going to be, and then also what where the experience is going to take them. And I think that's those are really, really important questions to ask. What are you finding are the most challenging questions to have from these new parents, if you will? What are the what are the tough questions they're asking that they didn't use to ask? Oh, that's a really good question. I for me, one of the hardest parts, one of the hardest meetings with families that I have are those where families aren't asking the right questions, right? <laughs> like, I, I, and I'm going to sort of backtrack a little bit to your, your previous question, because I, I really do think we need to be more inform, informing in interviewing families. So we need to say to families, here's what you should be considering for your child. And this is why you should send them to our schools, right? Like it's not as much about, and these are great schools, Harvard and Brown and Dartmouth. It's not about that kind of a result. It's not about how are you going to create my child so that they can be sold to these institutions, but rather what kind of experience are you going to give my child that is going to make them sure about where they want to go next and what they want to do. And 
schools that are globally minded, schools that are social justice minded, schools that are really forcing kids to step out of their comfort zones and think about the privilege of going to these schools are, um, you, they're going to be better citizens of our world, I think. And so some families don't want to ask those questions. Some families would just want to know about sort of how many APs you have, which is like for a lot of schools, that's really important. But for me, it's more about sort of how are you going to take my child and help them grow into what they will be when they graduate so they will take that to wherever they go next and be successful. And if it's Harvard or Dartmouth or Brown or one of those wonderful institutions, great. And if it's not, that's okay too. But they'll have the kind of experience and, and insight into what they want to do next. And I think that's really important. Well, it sounds like you've got a pretty good handle on combining this data-driven era, and I don't know if that is ever going to go away, with, with kind of the art part of admissions. This episode is sponsored by School Connections. The idea is simple, affordable and meaningful venues for traditional boarding schools, therapeutic schools, and domestic and international educational consultants to come together for informational and networking purposes. This process ultimately leads to the successful placing of students into the most compatible environments. School Connections workshops involve multiple individual meetings between educational consultants and admissions representatives from schools and programs. Their workshops range from two to three days and allow attendees to maximize their time with individual appointments in one workshop in one location. I know from experience, School Connections is a fantastic program. And if you are looking for students, please reach out to them at schoolconnections.org. That's schoolconnections.org. How do you juggle those two? That's a really good question. <laughs> and that's, it's a really challenging question because I do think there's a misconception about those of us who consider our schools businesses. Um, and that's sort of the dirty little secret of the closed door conversations that we have in budget committee. And when we're talking about setting our tuition is ultimately schools that are tuition reliant and most of us are have to look at numbers on a regular basis. And so it's really about doing both. It's really about sort of reading a room and knowing when the, when the time is to really present budgetarily what's been challenging. And then knowing also what's, what's, you know, when to talk about the really good things like the incoming class and how excited we are about having a tuba player in the ninth grade <laughs> or, you know, a thespian coming into middle school or whatever it might be. And I think the only way to do that is to, to show up, right? You go to lunch and you sit down with colleagues and you get to know them and what they're doing in their classrooms. You show up to theater performances and to sporting events and to, you know, walk the halls of the upper school and, and really check in with families about, you know, we talked a lot about you making this investment for your child. How's it been? Are you satisfied? Like what, what 
what do we need to know? What do you wish you knew? And I think that we as, you know, I, I'm the co-clerk of our retention committee and that's a really important role for me. It's really important for me to hear how these kids are doing and who's not, who is or isn't successful um, and why. Um, you know, my colleagues, uh, the directors of admission at Moses Brown and I go to faculty meetings. We listen to concerns that people have about the students. Um, you know, again, it's, it's reinforcement and believing in the product that you offer. And so that when you are making the hard decisions around budget or you're trying to retain as many kids as you can, um, you really believe in, in what you're doing and you believe in that, that the product is worth the cost and that trying to figure out how to make it accessible and fight for financial aid dollars and scholarship and things like that. So, so that we can remain the institutions that we're so proud of and evolve into institutions that we wanna become, right? Like now's the time, we're, we're all talking about that. We're all talking about access and inclusion and those are really, really important conversations to be involved in. Bobby, what, thank you. When you say uh, access and inclusion, what do you think when you say those two words? And how does that wow, that's a that's a that's a really good question. And I think um, so. I attended the NAIS Diversity Leadership Institute uh, last June. And for anyone listening, if you have the opportunity to do that institute, please do it. It is some of the most valuable professional development I've ever ever been exposed to. And I think one of the things that's really interesting is you know one of the one of the projects of my we, they're called home groups was to, to find something in your profession that um, sort of, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, sorry, sort of um, demonstrated your commitment to diversity and access in, in the field. And so obviously for admission, it's about, for us, getting rid of bias, right? Like trying to figure out the most unbiased way to do admission work. and. I actually had somebody in my presentation group really challenge me on you're creating a non-biased admission process. Is your institution ready to support you in that? Mm. So, you know, there's, there's wanting to be diverse. There's the number, right? We have it on our website. We have, we are proud of that number, but until we break down walls where where students and their families don't feel a sense of belonging in our institutions, it doesn't matter how much work we do to get them here, to include them in the, the community, if the culture is not aligned with how they're feeling. And so I talk about access carefully because it's not only about um, helping as many families from different backgrounds and different races and cultures come to our schools. It's more about helping our communities offer a sense of belonging to these families. And that is a long road. And I, I really wanna be cautious about not simplifying it because it's not simple. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a hard, dirty, like it's really hard work, right? It's difficult conversations. It's being honest. The black at social media accounts are so important and so difficult to read. And so we are at this moment where it's, of course, we want to be an inclusive 
the communities. And then the next question is, so, so what do we, what can we do? And I think that's really a challenging question. <clears throat> and one well, that I can't answer. I, I don't, I don't have all the answers. I wish I did. Well, obviously you're on board with that, but like you said, the, the day-to-day cultural acts, so to speak, that, that happened between students, students and teachers, students and dorm parents. This episode is sponsored by the Independent Educational Consultants Association. It is the largest and most respected organization representing independent educational consultants. An IECA member educational consultant is a skilled professional who provides counseling to help students and families choose a school that is a good personal match, one that will foster the student's academic and social growth. IECA members adhere to the strictest ethical ethical standards in the profession, visit hundreds of campuses each year, and are among the most experienced educational consultants in the profession. They focus on finding the best match between student and school. Many schools have gained students from new communities because of their outreach to IECA members. Personally, I was a director of admissions for 20 years, and the IECA consultants were crucial in helping me find the best mission-appropriate students. They are fantastic people to work with. In fact, national and regional media, as well as government agencies, rely on IECA as the authority of the profession. IECA is consistently cited by the media as the association with ethical, student-centered advising. For more information on how to connect with IECA members, go to IECAonline.com. That's IECAonline.com. What kind of communication have you had with your faculty or community at large about making sure that the, the inclusion aspect is, is something that is worked on every day? I, that, I think that's a great question. So Moses Brown is a Quaker school. Moses Brown is my third Quaker school. And one of the things that I love about Quaker schools is Quakers are not afraid to have difficult conversations, difficult conversations that come from people's hearts, right? So the whole idea behind Quaker meetings and Quaker Quaker meetings for worship is that there is, and I, I hope that my Quaker colleagues will correct me if I'm wrong, but that the religion of Quakerism believes that there is God in every person. And so every voice is worth hearing. And so how that translates to Quaker institutions and Quaker educational institutions is that every voice should be heard. And so when you get a group of teenagers into a room together to sit in silence and speak out of the silence from what is in their hearts, you're opening up a platform for students to speak. And those of us who have been in schools, those of us who've raised teenagers, those of us who are, are raising teenagers, know that that is not always fun. It is not always fun to hear what is on the minds of teenagers, right? But I think a lot of us, a lot of us who've been in these institutions for a long time think we have all the answers, think we know all the truths. And until you allow for students to use their voices constructively, and that's a, that's a teachable moment, right? Like you, you can't just say anything. You have to be thoughtful about what you say. But if you're speaking from your heart, it's worth saying. And so that's a moment, right? And so when 
we have these moments at Moses Brown, especially in the upper school, we stop, we say, we need to have a meeting for worship. We need to allow these, these students, these children to have their, to use their voices. And so, you know, um, around the, the moments after George Floyd and his murder and the moments after the synagogue massacre in Pittsburgh, I think that was two years ago. Those moments are moments where we have stopped as a community and we have come together and allowed students to use their voices. Now, what's tricky about that is finding a way to have students feel like that is a good use of their time, right? And having parents who may not agree with the stand that we need to stop and have these conversations, their children can grow from those conversations, even if it makes them uncomfortable. That's what education is about, right? Like learning from uncomfortable moments. And I, we are in a, we are in a time when we don't want our children to feel uncomfortable, right? Like we will do these, the, the snowplow moments or the, whatever the, the curling moments where we just want to make it so smooth for our children and not have them have to face any sort of adversity, that's a privilege. So I think these moments where we really stop and we, we allow students to be heard, Moses Brown now has affinity groups in our lower school, in our middle school and in our upper school, those are times that I think are really, really important for students to be able to speak their truths. So and again, I, I don't have all the answers. I wish I did, but certainly I'm on board and I think they're really, really valuable. Even if they're uncomfortable, I think they are valuable conversations to have. Well, it sounds like, thank you. It sounds like Moses Brown really uh, is in a wonderful position as you have a culture that creates safe places for students to speak from the heart. And that, that safety is crucial as we all know, to adolescents, um, because being ostracized for one's thoughts is a terrible position for a, for a young person to be in. Let me. I, uh, I will say, Tom. Just I don't. I don't want to present a euphoric sense <laughs> of place. Um, it's it, it's hard, right? I have a 15 year old son who is challenged by some of these conversations and. The poor thing has to ride with me in a car for 40 minutes to and from school. <laughs> and that's a that's our debrief time, right? So there are moments where it's acknowledging privilege, talking about that, and sort of finding a way to navigate really having these conversations a lot and the reason why it's important. And I think that's I think that's valuable. And so you know, I think that the challenge is to find the balance between what we feel um, personally and politically and leaving space for every voice in the room. And I think that's something that we're also going to have to really find. You know, we are we are in moments right now that are highly politicized. And I think that's challenging. Um, so there's finding the finding the pathway of talking about humanity and what's human versus what's political. And that, I think that's, that's our challenge. And like you said, no, no easy answers. Right. Uh, I want to get back to uh, your statements about retention. Uh, it seems like a number of schools 
retention is almost an afterthought. It's, oh, well, we're about to send, we're about to send out those re-enrollment contracts. Um, let's start calling and telling them how much we care about them. Um, <laughs> how, <laughs> how, do you, how do you handle that successfully, particularly as you related to going into the school community, listening to what faculty have, but how do you, how do you marry that with having an effective retention program? So uh, not this past summer, but the summer before we had a administrative retreat where we were talking about retention and my colleague, OJ Marti, who's the head of our lower school said, what if we approach retention with this mission statement of no concern is too small. So that in October, we send out an email to our faculty that says, if you hear something in the hallways, in advisor meeting, from a parent in the pickup line, let us know. Let the division heads and the retention committee who are the division heads and my co-clerk, um, Debbie Phipps, who is the assistant head for academics at Moses Brown, let us know and we will strategize how we want to address it. And so what happens as early as October is parents get phone calls saying, hey, you know, your child's advisor said X, Y, or Z, said you were concerned about this. And I'm just wondering if we can, we can really tr strategize to find a solution early. And most of the time, the parents are more struck with the outreach than they are with the solution, right? Mm. So it's just, wow, this school really cares. This school is listening. This school wants to help, help solve problems with me. And it's not whatever you need will do because you don't want to create that culture, right? You'd have a faculty that was updating their resumes constantly if that's sort of the <laughs> parents are always right attitude, but rather, you know, really simple things. The other thing is, we are in, I don't know how much you know about Providence, Rhode Island, but there are, I would guess there are more schools per city block in the, in the city of Providence than, mo than a lot of cities. It's probably comparable to New York City. And um, there's a lot of schools in Providence. And so we hear a lot, um, well, this school does this and Moses Brown doesn't. And so to be able to say to a parent, actually we do. You just don't know about it. And it, so it informs us what we have to tell our parents as well. So from the retention committee, we built, you know, an eighth grade, a present eighth grade to rising ninth grade curriculum night. Learn about the upper school. Even though you've been at Moses Brown since nursery school, you don't know anything about the Moses Brown upper school. So let us educate you about why you shouldn't be looking at all these other schools and why you should be looking at them. So it's marketing your own school to your present customers, right? It's sort of like the, if you have the old model Subaru Outback, don't look at the, um, the fancy Atlas that Volkswagen has put out. Look at the Forester, right? You need a bigger car, stay within our brand, like stay and he, and, and it's not just, oh, you drive a Subaru, you love the Subaru, you'll just stay with the Subaru, but it's sort of really marketing why you should stay with the brand and what is consistent throughout and then also what's different once 
you're looking at those key moments of upper school that so many parents are looking at in terms of what the next steps are. Well, it sounds like you've done a great job at deputizing your faculty, so to speak. Um, I love what you said about making sure that any issue, no matter how small, is addressed immediately. Because as we all know, when those re-enrollment contracts come out and that issue is not addressed, you know, when you ask the person, well, why not? It's, well, we just didn't feel it was working. That's an amorphous answer, but there was a very specific issue as to why they didn't. Um, so that's certainly a skill that people in the admissions world need to pay attention to, and that is retention approaches early, early on. Let me get back a little bit, if I could, Bobby, to the new skills or the, the skills that, uh, that never go away. But if you were to say, what are, what, are the top, what are the top three skills right now that someone considering the profession really needs to have? You have to like kids, right? Like <laughs> you have to have an authenticity around meeting with whether it's fifth graders, eighth graders, you know, you have to really like it. You have to enjoy those conversations because though we interview every student that comes to Moses Brown and every school I've ever worked at has had an interview with the child. Um, I get into trouble because I get super curious in my interviews. So I tell parents my interviews will last 20 minutes and 40 minutes later, I'm having a knock at my door saying, you got to stop this interview because your next family is here. So um, you have to like kids. And that's amazing. Like 30 years later, the fact that my greatest joy is meeting with families and talking to parents about what their hopes and dreams for their child, <clears throat> you know, are, I, I think that's a wonderful, I think you have to like kids. I, my first budget committee experience was at Lawrence Academy when I became director of admission there. And I was invited to my first budget committee and we had to cut $350,000 from our budget. We had to find that money somewhere in our budget. And I remember sitting around a table with my colleagues who were division or, you know, department heads and athletic directors and theater department heads and really working with them to try to figure out where that money was coming from. Because if you take money from one area, that area is going to suffer. And so it's really sort of trying to figure out how to give everybody what they want, but having a limited budget. And I think having a mind where you understand the push-pull of budget numbers is really, really helpful. Um, schools right now are looking at tuition differently. We're looking at financial aid budgets differently. You know, we're looking at revenue more than um, cost per child. You know, so what is the ideal size of your school? What, how many faculty do you have? And what it's going to take to fill every seat in a classroom while also balancing a budget. So I would say understanding budget and really keeping, being able to, I mean, those are, I think, two very different skills. Um, and the third thing I, I, like a growth mindset in this industry is really, really important. I, I really respect colleagues who have stayed at one place and done, you know, the same job for a long time. But I also feel like we all have a lot to learn. And so I'm so grateful for organizations like 
um, yours and like, you know, the Association of Independent School Admission Professionals and the Enrollment Management Association who, who constantly give us opportunities to learn from one another and learn more than just how to do the best day visit. You know, it's really sort of these conversations around, we tried this at my school and it worked. So really keeping your finger on the pulse of what's happening out there. Some of my best professional relationships have been with colleagues at some of my most competitive schools. Um, you know, schools that we have a lot of overlap with. We're, you know, it's not about, them beating up, well, it is about them beating us out, but it's not something that they're doing. It's something that we're not doing, right? Like if a family is choosing one school over our school and we see each other as very similar schools, what aren't we doing? Um, so I think we can learn a lot from one another. And I think organizations like those help us really see that we're not out, we're all very competitive, but we are, it's more about collegiality than it is about competitive, you know, a competitive spirit. I had a conversation with Mark Scloro, uh, executive director of the IECA. And he made the comment that, and, and this was an issue, boy, 30 years ago, um, as directors of admission were working with consultants. And, and he brought it up that still today, uh, a number of these directors of admissions are, because again, there's a new crop of admissions directors. You know, they have to kind of cut their teeth and find their way. This episode is brought to you by ISCA. Does your board chair know about ISCA, the Independent School Chairpersons Association? The mission of ISCA is to support independent school board chairs in becoming effective governance leaders for their boards. ISCA accomplishes this by offering peer support and networking resources and educational opportunities. Get your board chair connected to ISCA today by visiting iscachairs.org. That's I-S-C-A-C-H-A-I-R-S dot org. I-S-C-A-C-H-A-I-R-S dot org. Still, the challenge was differentiating their school from other schools in the minds of a professional consultant. And he made the point that ideally, if the presentation is done well, when a, when a consultant sees a particular family, they'll go, aha, that kind of school kid. How would you respond to that um, in terms of what he, what he feels still can be improved upon as, as people work specifically with consultants? That's a, I think that's a great question. I think what we really need to be thinking about in our schools is what we do think authentically we do well. Not just what we think families want to hear that we do well, but rather what it is that we do well. And I think using success stories, using parents in the process of helping you inform your new customers is really, really helpful. So, you know, it's, it's sort of like the worst tour guide a response to a question of why did you choose this school is, well, I didn't get in anywhere else. <laughs> <laughs> or, well, my parents thought this was a good place for me. 
you know, but really getting into the why. And I like, I think really having people who know your school well, talking about your school. So that is something that we talked about at Tabor was how to integrate our parents into the, the process of becoming marketers for our school. How do you do that? Not, yeah, how do it's you, how do you hard. Yeah. It's hard. And it's, you know, I think one of the things about doing that is figuring out the why. So why is it that your child is successful at the school? And instead of saying like, my child has a great advisor, talk about why the school has the advisor system why they feel like having advisors is a, is a valuable ad for students. And so it's not just, well, if your child is lucky enough to get this advisor, they're gonna have a great advisor, but rather the program itself is valuable because of X, Y, or Z, the residential curriculum, whatever it is. You know, we always, we talk a lot about sports in these schools. Sports are very important. A lot of people feel like they send their child to these schools to become NCAA athletes, right? But what about the JV athletes? They're having a great experience too. Why? Why are they having a great experience? What about the kid who's always wanted to be involved in a theater program, but doesn't want to act? How can they get involved? Like those are pieces of it because it can be daunting. Our schools can be really daunting. They're, Moses Brown is beautiful. It sits on this big hill in the middle of Providence. It's a big brick building. Every campus I've ever worked at has been so beautiful and so exclusive, right? Like how am I ever gonna find a place at that institution? So it's really sort of trying to figure out ways to break down the walls and figure out what it is about our schools that make them the schools that we think they are. And, it, and gosh, if it's a exclusivity, I think that's a real problem. We're great because we don't accept everyone, right? Like, no, 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 no. Like, let's figure out how to brand ourselves as places where every kid can, can find their value and their work, whether they're playing on a varsity sport or not, whether they're leading the play or not. So, so that's a long kind of, I took this down a different road, but I think right. that it's really knowing and understanding who you are and not only, not only talking about what you think families want to hear. Thank you. Let me, let me get back specifically to the logistics and the tactics of how you deputize specific parents who, as you know, I mean, they're all busy. How, you know, how is it that you approach them and kind of keep them as your go-to people? How do you, what's the training or what's the ask like? Well, for me, I mean, they're now platforms, right? Like there's this, there's a platform called PeerPal that allows prospective families to connect with current families and, and those things. That That's the work of these institutions. That's sort of, putting parents to work, which is great. Like if you have parents that have time and they, I mean, no parent, what parent doesn't love to talk about their child, right? We all love to talk. I could do a whole hour podcast about how much <laughs> I love and think my children are the best. That's why admissions work is so fun. But there's also these moments where 
you know, the old adage, gosh, I've been saying it for a long time. Unhappy parents tell 20 families that they're unhappy with your school. Happy parents are too busy being happy to tell anybody. <laughs> um, so, so it's finding ways to really utilize them in a really authentic way. And, and really just talking about how you would like them to share their joy. So whether they are at a church event, a church function, whether they're, you know, sailing on Narragansett Bay, whether they're attending a performance in Providence, having, giving, giving them tools to say, when somebody says, how's your child, talking about why their child is so happy at Moses Brown, instead of saying, oh, they're great. They're great. What a great school. It's awesome. You should look at it, you know, but like, why? And so I think it's just, I don't think parents understand. I mean, people know, it's funny, I lived, I've lived 45 minutes away from Providence for eight years now, and I never realized what a small town it is. Providence, Rhode Island is a town. I mean, it, people talk like it's a small town. Everybody knows everybody's business. Everybody knows everything. And that can be a really bad thing, but that can be a really good thing too. Because happy parents sell your school, right? Absolutely. And so finding Absolutely. ways. Last year, um, not last year, so it would have been my first year, we were trying to find ways to draw more people from Foxborough, Massachusetts. So I went to the Foxborough Public Library and I said, could we have an event here? And they said, sure, like fill out this form and plan your, you know, just let us know the dates and the times. And we got boxes of coffee, boxes of Joe from Dunkin' Donuts and cookies from our dining hall. And we invited present families and we invited, you know, we, we blanketed our whole admission database from that area with an invitation to this event. And we had the exact number of visiting parents as we did current parents. So we had, you know, about 10, 10 people, 10 families there, which at first we were like, ooh, this isn't great. But every single one of those parents submitted an application and three of those families enrolled. So, you know, to have five present families and five prospective families in a room together one of the present parents just started to, when he was telling his story about his children, he started to weep. He just started to weep and nobody was expecting it. He certainly was not expecting it, but talk about a platform for sales. Holy smokes. Wow. He believes so firmly in, in what we were selling that he, you know, he wept during his little prison three minute presentation. So anyway, so it's those, authentic moments and it doesn't have to be a big fancy event it can be a box of joe at a local public library but just give your parents opportunities to connect because that's again we just all love we all want the best for our kids that's all we want that's right that's right and just to let the parents talk freely about their emotions as being parent because as you said earlier it's 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 scary and tough raising kids and there's no right. book for each individual parent, for their their individual child. Let me let me ask a little bit about. Obviously, uh, to have a successful office, Bobby, it's not just you; it's your team. And let me ask you a little bit about training because that's something that seems like it's some many times an afterthought, um, and it's important with all the new data coming out and and ways that. Uh, 
admissions people, as we know, we don't go to college for admissions. How do you, how do you bring someone new in and, and how do you kind of keep the training schedule somewhat consistent? I think it needs to be part of your annual calendar, like when you're talking about seasons and what happens and when you're in it, it's hard to find time for training, right? That's, that's one of the things that I love about the Enrollment Management Association and annual conference because it's at a time when we can all go. We, all, we can all leave our offices in September. Um, I'm a feedback junkie. I love feedback. I love being able to talk about strengths and opportunities for growth. So, and I think the summer is the best time to do that in admissions. We're all still enrolling or many of us are still enrolling in the summer, but it is a time when we can reflect. Um, I don't know if the name David Mallory is familiar to you. Absolutely. Um, I attended the West Town Conference uh, the year I was appointed director of admission. Is that true? I, was, I think I was at only, I might've been at George School at that time. But anyway, I remember saying, oh gosh, a conference in June. Like, oh, we're all so tired. Really, is this the best use of our time? And the whole West Town Conference is designed or designed to be reflective, right? Like, look at the past year. What has happened? Where have you grown? Where have you struggled? What has been challenging? Where are you going? Like what's what's next? And so I think that the summer is a really good time to sort of reflect and recharge. And I really value feedback and evaluation because it helps underperformers grow, but it also really elevates overperformers. So somebody who isn't seen in your office because of the daily grind, somebody, the the person who's answering your phones, the person who's doing the data entry, giving them an opportunity to really talk about the value of their worth, the value of what they do in your office, what they do, that customer service orientation is really, really valuable because it gives them a chance to say, hey, What I do every day matters. And I think that's really, really important. I think it's really easy for those of us that are meeting with the families and making the big decisions. I think it's easy for us to think we deserve all the credit. And surveys tell you that the person that answers the phone is the most valuable person in your office. Either I got a phone call back, I didn't get a phone call, so-and-so made this process so easy. It was great to, you know, I, I talk to him or her every week. You know, that person is so valuable. And I think we forget that sometimes. So I think it's really important to sort of push pause and really and let people sort of see their value and worth in the office. Um, I also think it's really important that we all help each other. Like, so for example, we're doing Blackboard this um July, Blackbot has their annual conference in July. And rather than all five of us going into that workshop feeling like we have to learn everything, we're trying to discover what it what area of our job will most will be will be most what am I trying to say? Will will, will the Blackbot conference serve? So if it's the person that schedules the interviews, what area of the Blackbot conference will be most useful for her? she should go to that part of the conference and then come back and train all of us. 
So I think it's rather than feeling like you have to learn everything in three days, figuring out what you can learn about your area and then what you can bring back to the to your office is really helpful. Um, so that's really, really important to me that everybody feels like we all have something to learn from one another and that we don't all know it all because that's a dangerous place to be. That's right. And to have that dependence on each other, I think, does promote collegiality as well. What do you what do you do specifically? Let me let me get back to the training issue. When you have a new person in the office, what what do the first 30 days look like? They're brand new. That right trial by fire, right? <laughs> here's your computer, here's the phone. Good luck. No. Um that's a really good question. I think having them meet with a lot of different people is really, really helpful. I think always sort of, I think saying, if you have any questions, let me know is dangerous. I think yes. making sure that you're meeting with the person every five to seven days and saying, you know, giving time. I have, you know, one of our, um, our admission coordinator was new two years ago and every, still two years later, every time she knocks at my door, she says, I'm so sorry to bother you. Um, and, and that's, I am busy. I am a busy person, but I always have time to answer questions and I always have time to hear feedback. And I think that's a really important culture to establish early on. And I think the only way to do that is to say, I'm going to interrupt my own busyness and dedicate these next 30 minutes to you. So let's meet, let's sit down and you can ask me questions. And if you don't have questions, let me tell you some of the questions you should have, right? Like these are some things that have come up in the past. This has been really challenging. I also feel like it's really important not to have anybody feel like they're, it's up to them to solve the problem. So if they have a difficult parent that they're dealing with, if they can't figure out something in the system um, and they feel like they've tried everything and they just can't do it. So they've failed for whatever reason. I think taking that on and sort of saying, let's try to figure this out together, um, not solving problems for people, but solving problems with people, I think is, is really, really important. It's a really important culture to establish. And I've had fantastic role models in that, in being new and, so, no, that's that's crucial, particularly someone new. They've got to feel supported from day one. Yeah, yeah. Um, I was talking to a good friend of mine, Pat Finn, who uh, runs School Connections, and he was saying when he started at Canterbury, his predecessor, uh, when Pat asked him, uh, "What should I know?" and his and his training comment was, "Well, you'll figure it out." <laughs> That was that was the extent of his training. And I think we all, we can all kind of relate to that. My last question about training, and then I want to move on. Um, do you have a procedural manual about if someone came in, you say, here, this kind of gets you started? Not yet. Um, for specifically for the admission enrollment office, no. I mean, Moses Brown does. But again, it's thick. It's yeah. You know, I, we, we should all have cliff notes. We should all have the yes. cliff note version of the employee question. handbook. Yeah. Um, I, you know, I would like to, I think I'm new in my role as director of enrollment management. 
So there's my list of um, to do's is long um, <laughs> and really sort of figuring out what, what that looks like. I, my goal for next year is just a um, calendar of what we should be thinking about when, because again, it's, when you're in it, it's so busy. And all of a sudden, open house is two weeks away, and everything is last minute. We're putting in work orders, we're asking faculty to speak, we're doing, you know, and so if we all, I mean, school wide, here's what's happening in enrollment from this day, you know, from July 1st to June 30th, here's what's happening in our office. I think it can, it, it, it gives us a good, it gives others in our schools an understanding that admission work is 365 every day, you know, but it also, it eliminates hopefully this, I didn't know, I didn't know that there was a class day coming up. I didn't know like we should be planning for this. So once fall open house ends, we start thinking about winter open house and that sort of having that constant it's not to give people work. It's just to make sure that nobody's surprised. That's right. Um, I think that that's I right. think that's really really important. You know, you you mentioned earlier that you are a very busy person, and I think anybody in the profession who is a director understands that. But by the same token, you seem effervescent. You seem excited, fired up. How do you how do you remain that way in your profession, but also as as a as a mother and a spouse? and your own personal life, how do you make it? What does a day look like for you? Do you eat certain foods? Do you work out <laughs> in a certain way? What do you do? That's a great question. Um, so, I, you know, I'm sure I have a routine. The mornings are not routine. I mean, they're, luckily, like I said, I have a 15-year-old and an 18-year-old. So they're highly self-reliant, which is, awesome. And I'm a cook, I love to cook. And my son also loves to cook. And so he makes himself breakfast. And that's a, the greatest joy is being upstairs in my room and getting ready and here and smelling my son's whatever he's cooking. Um, the moments for me in the car with him are really valuable. Um, and we have a rule, kids love their phones, kids love their AirPods and you know, shutting off. And our rule is one way, one way you can be on your phone, but one way is all mine. And so whether it's singing in the car or, you know, just talking about something that's happened during the day, those are, those are moments for me that are really valuable. And I have, um, my daughter is not, she does not, she's not lucky enough to have the commute with me, but so those times are mostly in the evenings and, um, you know, just sort of before bed, just sort of checking in with her. Um, I, so I lost my mom very tragically 17 years ago. And that loss um, has really helped me sort of put in perspective what's really important, right? Like it's really easy for us to make what we do the most important thing to who we are, right? Like I am what I do. Yeah. Um, and I'm not like, I'm a different person at work than I am at home. Um, finding time to dance, finding time to cook, finding time for simple pleasures, walking the dog. Um, you know, my husband and I walk a lot and talk a lot. 
um, try to find things that aren't only about schools to talk about <laughs> with your spouse and your children. Um, so those are, you know, I think that's it, losing a losing a loved one too early is puts things into perspective, right? Like really sort of, okay, what what is this? What is this life that I've signed on to as a parent? And how is it going to be valuable for me and valuable for my kids? And that like, honestly, not to get too personal, but my husband and I were both working at Tabor. My daughter was at Tabor. And I think I shared with you, there was a moment in my kitchen where I just looked at my husband and I said, like, I can't, this is becoming our life and it's too much, right? And so that's sort of when I made the decision to, and also it's a friend school in Providence, Rhode Island. Like, how could I resist? But I think, um, you know, those moments where our work becomes our life. Um, I always talk to new colleagues who are just getting into the profession. We all have meetings, schedule a meeting with yourself, schedule a meeting with your family, schedule a meeting, especially at boarding schools. Can you, can you do a duty switch with me on Thursday night? No, sorry, I have a meeting. You don't have to say what the meeting is. The meeting can be- A good movie. You know, Margarita Thursday at whatever, or a great movie, or just a time, a board game with your family. Like, I really think those are really, really important moments. And, and this is really, really personal work. So to know who you are as a person makes you valuable to your institution that I think that's really important. Now, what do you like to cook? Oh, everything, everything. And gosh, a pandemic really helps you lean into, I don't know, ramen. I can do ramen. I can make wontons. Um, you know, my, we did, my husband and I did that 23 and me, and I have like this tiny, tiny piece of me that is um, somewhere like something Italian, but, and that like, I'm like, aha, that's why I cook chicken Parmesan so well, you know, like <laughs> I just cooking for people I love brings me more joy than anything ever. I just love it. I love cooking for my family and are my you, friends. Are you a traveler? Uh, I mean, overseas, does that call you or not so much? Not real. I mean, cultures and how food brings people together in different cultures, that really appeals to me. I, I, I don't know. I don't, it's not, we'll see. We'll see when I retire, um, <laughs> if I become more of a traveler, but the way food connects people, I, that, that's definitely something that intrigues me for sure. Well, clearly you're somebody who's, who's just interested and has fun with life all the time. Um, in, in the last year, uh, on some levels, it has not been a fun time for the world. Right. Right. Um, what do you feel is the most pressing problem right now as a society that we need to help fix? Oh my goodness, Tom, what a question. Um, I think we all need to think about others more. I think we need to stop thinking about ourselves. Um, and I don't think, I think we need to think about the future. I think we can learn a lot from our past, but I think we need to think about the future. And 
what we want our world to look like for our children and our children's children. That sounds so cliche, but I do. I think there's so much selfishness. Maybe there's a lot of, why do I have to apologize for, you know, X, Y, or Z? And it's not, it's not about that. It's about sort of being empathetic and having compassion for others and doing what's right for things that are larger than we are. And I think that's really, really important. Um, you know, I think setting up systems and cultures that are more outward facing and think about humanity is, is going to be really, really important in our, in the next however many years. You have been so kind to spend your time with me today and our listeners. Uh, obviously, you are a thought leader. You are a deep thinker. Let's say we were creating a billboard on the freeway of life. What should that <laughs> billboard say from the mind of Bobby Crine? Oh, my gosh. I don't know. I am. I, I wish you could see my wall right now. I am a. I am a feedback junkie, and I am a quote junkie. Um, uh, so I, you know, I think that I'm not, I know that I'm not perfect, and I don't have all the answers. But I think my husband always says, be more curious than certain. And I think that's a really good, right? Like curiosity. I think admission people have it in them to, to be inquirers. We, we ask questions. We ask, we want to learn from other people. And I think hearing people instead of, you know, in addition to listening to people is really, really important. So I'm, I'm not, my billboard is like now the side of a big <laughs> building. It's no longer a small billboard I don't know I'm looking at all the quotes I think um you know standing up for other people making sure that everyone has a voice I think you know the Quaker tenants are are pretty important to me I'm not a Quaker myself but I'm it's it's definitely something that resonates with me where you know, you can learn so much about other people and you can learn so much about yourself by really listening and hearing what other people think and, you know, feel. So I think that's really, really important. Well, we could go on a long time. I, I, I'm very sure of that. Um, Me too. Thank and I'd you. love, and I'd love to do this, do this again sometime. Um, people can obviously reach out to you. Uh, I will have in the show notes how they can reach you. Great. Uh, is there any last thing you'd like to say about anything? I don't, I don't think so. I, you know, I obviously love what I do. These schools are so interesting to me with all their flaws. I just, you know, they're all, all their wonderful qualities and all their flaws. I think, you know, there's, there's no perfect school mm. out there. Um, but if we you know, if we show up every day to make things a little bit better for those in our community, I think we're doing what we need to do. And I, I think that's really, really important. I think we all need to grow. I think we need to 
sort of be thoughtful about the work we're doing and not hold on to the past too much and really look to the future and do things that are, that are forward thinking and, you know, have entrepreneurial spirits in, in our work for sure. Well, that's, uh, that's certainly a word that is, has come up more and more is you've got to continue to think out of the box. Uh, what, what worked last year is not necessarily going to work this year. And I, like I always say, I think a pandemic helps us have the perspective that even if we think we're ready for anything, we're not ready for everything. So, <laughs> right? Like having, having an opportunity to really be forced to think about doing everything differently has been exhausting, but really valuable to these schools. And it really, when you can't show in person, what the value of your school is, you really, really have to learn to talk about your institution and use different voices to do it. So. Yeah, that's, that's so true. I think it, that's one thing that people have realized about promoting the school is we have to use the whole community together to do that. Right, right. Well, Bobby, clearly you are a gift to Moses Brown and to education in general. And uh, it's been such a pleasure talking with you. I I know you're busy. Uh, This has been a wonderful time. I know our listeners are going to glean a lot of good information. And I just wish you a continued fantastic spring. And let's continue to stay in touch, please. I really appreciate it, Tom. Thank you so much. It's it's my pleasure. And uh, just be safe. If you enjoy the podcast, please consider leaving a short review on your favorite platform. It takes less than 60 seconds, and it really makes a difference in helping to convince those hard-to-get guests. Also, I really love reading the reviews. Lastly, please explore the full range of our recruiting services, guest opportunities, memberships, newsletters, past shows, and our exciting promotional campaigns for 2021 through this podcast, Roar Magazine, the first ever lifestyle publication for admission professionals that launches this summer, and Admission Fest Summit, power marketing for the new era. This summit will be held in San Diego on December 5th. Please go to our website for all details at www.dartmouthassociates.com. That's www.dartmouthassociates.com. Thank you again for being part of our wonderful membership, and I wish you an absolutely terrific day. This episode is brought to you by Winner Marketing. They are a global company that actually understands independent schools. I know. As their advisor, I bring 30 years of educational success, both as a head of school and director of admissions. They don't try to squeeze you into a campaign template that doesn't fit your educational needs. Instead, they first listen carefully to your concerns and develop a creative solution just for you. They 
understand the increasing competition in the marketplace and aggressively pursue a comprehensive campaign to elevate the school brand to your target market. Their precise approach guides potential families from awareness to inquiry and to finally enroll. They use world-class methods to raise credibility and rankings by featuring you in top-tier press campaigns and optimizing your Google rankings with dynamic content. Additionally, they create press releases, funnel and ad campaigns, SMS and email nurturing. Also, they enhance domain authority, create backlink strategies, and engage top-tier retainers to get you featured in platinum publications such as Forbes and Business Insider. They will also create a podcast branding tour to exponentially increase your exposure. They've got the skills to help small nonprofits to multi-million dollar corporations. Contact them now. They can save your school. You can reach them at their website, which is winner, W-Y-N-N-E-R, marketing, Com. That's Winner Marketing, W-Y-N-N-E-R Marketing.com. Or reach them via email at info at WinnerMarketing.com. That's I-N-F-O at Winner, W-Y-N-N-E-R Marketing.com. This episode is sponsored by the NinjaGram App. Let's talk about automating your social media with the Ninjagram app over at www.ninjagram.app. This Instagram software will help you automate and grow your Instagram following fast by using their auto follow, auto unfollow, auto comment, auto like, and auto story views feature, and much more. Get over to www.ninjagram.app dot app today to purchase and download the ninjagram app at www.ninja n-i-n-j-a-g-r-a-m dot app and start growing your instagram following fast today also i want to give a shout out to my producers over at hype music network and jwattproduction.com these guys produce all my episodes and i trust no one else to bring the quality performance i demand every time if you need help with your first podcast they will take you by the hand and guide you through the whole process visit them at hypemusicnetwork.com that's h-y-p-e-m-u-s-i-c-n-e-t-w-o-r-k.com and at jwattproduction.com that's j-a-y-w-a-t-p-r-o-d-u-c-t-i-o-n.com you will not be disappointed